Welcome to an all-new Fast Friends podcast. I'm your host, Logan Cummins, at Logan Cummins on Twitter. And this is typically the part of the podcast where I try to come up with some remotely clever metaphor to describe how fast I'll make friends with a guest, but not this week. This week is a really special episode because I want to bring on one of my longest-time friends and talk about our friendship. And so without further ado, I will welcome to the podcast, Les Thatcher. I'm Logan Cummins. I'm a former pro wrestling creative, a mediocre stand-up comedian, and a ranch-dressing aficionado who lives beyond my means. This is my weekly podcast where I set out to make friends with each and every one of my guests. Sometimes it works. Other times, not so much. Welcome to the podcast, Les. Thank you, Logan. It's great to be with you. And I'm proud to be one of your fastest friends. Fastest friends. Yeah, we. I mean, we've been... It's. I, it, it doesn't seem like that long, but it's been a while. It's been... It, it has. Shit. It has. How's your week but going? We, we go back quite a few years, though. Oh, yeah. Like, I was in college at the time. Yeah. You came to us uh, to... Uh, to earn a credit, right? Yeah. Your, it was your senior year. Was it your senior year? It was, let's see, 2000, uh, it was my it was my sophomore year, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. It was probably yeah. like mid, the uh, second part of my sophomore year. Yeah. yeah, you came to us to intern. To intern. And, and I thought, well, this man must be out of his mind <laughs> intern with an independent wrestling company. And it was... Uh, it was unforgettable on so many levels. Um, but yeah, I ended up getting the credits. Uh, and now we've been friends long enough that I've actually paid those credits off. Which, well, great. holy shit, that's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Since I don't have any college uh, credits or bills. Uh, but you know what? Uh, I, I, to me, the fact that we just started to work together, ever never met him, never met and it's morphed into a great friendship. I mean, seriously, uh, I'm proud to be your friend. And uh, that it's lasted so many years and has grown, I think, is amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been one of uh, the best parts of my life, honestly. I've enjoyed it so much. Um, and I, you know, we'll get we'll get into all the time together at HWA and all the other stuff too. So, um, well, like I said, thank you for do, for coming on and doing the podcast. I'll just give you a quick overview of how it's going to work. There are three rounds. So the first round will just be like questions about you, your life, your career, stuff like that. Um, the second round is called Five for Five, and so I have five questions prepared for you. You have the opportunity to ask me five questions. Um, and we'll just kind of go back and forth with those five. And then we will use a paper fortune teller, which uh, I used in elementary school to like pick different things uh, and pick an activity that we'll play. And then we'll end with a friend request. All right. Very good. Any questions? Or are you ready to jump right in? Why not just beat me over the head with it? <laughs> <laughs> you take take your best shot. <laughs> oh, man. I might regret that. Um, <laughs> real quick off the top, um, if you had to describe who Les Thatcher is to somebody that has never met you, what like what's your sort of like elevator pitch? Who is Les? Wow. He's a beat-up old wrestler who uh, is over 61 years in the industry, has a tremendous passion and love for the industry and has been a part of it since he was 19 years old, became a fan of it when he was around nine years old and doesn't know what the hell he's going to do if they don't let him do something in wrestling. (laughs) Uh, That sounds pretty accurate from the time that I've known you. (laughs) Um, All right. You mentioned earlier your Cincinnati, uh, Cincinnati hometown, born and raised Um, you. What were you like as a kid? I was just a normal, you know, I had a great childhood. I, I There's no complaints. I could start and say, well, we did this, we did it. I, we lived in the country until I was uh, just before my, uh, before I turned, well, I was about five and a half, I guess. Okay. When we moved into the city itself. So I, I you know, uh, we lived in a small little house uh, and we had an outhouse, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. That uh, was started, then. but we moved to the city it, right into Cincinnati uh, before I turned six. And so that's where I did all my schooling was was in the city. Uh, but I lived a great childhood. You know, I look back at American. If you've seen American Graffiti or if you watched Happy Days, mm-hmm. you watched my childhood. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, 
I was blessed to win the lottery for parents who were, uh, they never tried to tell me what to do, but they always got behind me to support me in what I tried. Became, got involved in athletics when I was I started playing uh, organized athletics at age seven. Okay. And so baseball, football, basketball, wrestling, got into drag racing when mm -hmm. I was 15 years old. Played, uh, the crazy thing is I played baseball against Roger Staubach. Okay. He was, I was playing for the Madison Place Cub Scouts. Okay. He was playing for the Deer Park Cub Scouts. <laughs> and uh, my, my mother had a uh, clipping that she was a sport, big sports fan as well, where the East-West All-Star game that her son, Les Malady, my real last name, was playing first, was first base on the East All-Stars. And Roger Staubach was an outfielder on the West All-Stars. So, uh, yeah. Well, you know, Cincinnati was big sports, basketball, football, baseball, the yeah. whole thing. Uh, played uh, some high school basketball. I should I say I watched Jerry Lucas play <laughs> high school basketball. when our, I went to Central High School. Yeah. And we played at Middletown. And this was back when uh, they were just, they were state champions, I think, every year that... Uh, he was part of that squad. So, you know, it's uh, a, a lot of great things to look back on. Cincinnati, as you know, is not the biggest party town in the world. Yeah. But it's a, a lot of great tradition. And I miss it. I, yeah. I truly do. It, it's always going to be home for me. Yeah. I love Cincinnati. Uh, it's, I, I always feel like, and now it's like, um, I feel like it's, it's kind of like trendy now. Like people like go there and they'll do like long weekends and stuff. Um, and I feel like that's kind of happened in the last 10 years or so. Um, we've been gone for 15 and I, I still, I love going back when I get to, um, I do too. If, if, if I were to win the lottery today and, and could do anything I want, I go back and buy the, try to buy the house back that I sold to move down here to Knoxville. Yeah. And even if I had to offer them some ridiculous price, <laughs> right. Just to go back because it was home, yeah. you know, well, you know, you, where you grew up in Indiana. Yeah. Right. And, and that's still home yeah. for you. Absolutely. Right? I mean, regardless. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my parents still live in the same house that I came home from the hospital in. I mean, from the hospital too, I guess. <laughs> right. Well, th that house in Cincinnati we had purchased in 1964, mm -hmm. and of course I'd start wrestling at 60, and but it was always the place to go back mm -hmm. and lick my wo wounds. I knew I, the phone rang; it wasn't going to be for me, mm -hmm. right? So I could I could mellow out and. Uh, regroup if I needed to it was I mean in reality it was sort of like going back to the womb yeah you know to a degree yeah and the, the comfort level was just so great yeah and when I decided you know I've known family in Cincinnati any longer and uh, my kids are spread out over my son lives my son and my grandson are here in Knoxville uh, but he's so busy we don't see each other that much but I decided well I lived in Knoxville before when I wrestled mm -hmm. and I liked the city so and it's you know so this was a place to come, but but Cincinnati is still home, and uh, I I hear it all the time here. I wear my uh, Buckeyes base, baseball cap to the gym, and somebody say, oh, "You're." A... <laughs> <laughs> I I feel like a Yankee imposing upon these Southerners. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's funny. With um with the sports that you played, so you mentioned baseball, basketball, football, all of those, like you said, big sports in the Cincinnati area. Did you play um, all of them like all into high school, or was there one that you sort of like focused on? Um, well, and wrestling, uh, obviously. Well, uh, now I played baseball from the time I was seven, organized baseball from the age seven to age 16. Mm -hmm. uh, Sandlot football. Central High School was on the opposite side. Central was a school where you could get uh, your college preparatory courses, mm -hmm. but also was, was a tech school, right? So you learned to trade mm -hmm. there as well. So there were no boundaries. You could go to Central High School from any part of the city. So there were several of us that, that went over there. Uh, I played basketball there basically because a couple of the other guys that I traveled, you know, from my part of town played basketball. But I never played organized football or baseball there for that very same reason. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, it was uh, the drag racing took me away from the baseball. Okay. And I, uh, I, I, drove, I actually drove on a – I was driving a race car before I had a driver's license, 15 years old, 
there was a uh, outlaw drag strip down in uh, Kentucky, at Thornhill, Kentucky. And we had a 35 Ford coupe with a 50 Ford flat, V8 flathead, dual carburetor, dual Stromberg 97s, you wouldn't know what those are. No. <laughs> aluminum, aluminum heads, uh, headers, the whole thing. And a 35 Ford five-window coupe. And a friend of mine would drive it to the track. I would race it. He would drive it home <laughs> for me. I couldn't drive on the street at that point in time, right? And actually, I stayed in drag racing into the early part of my wrestling career as well. Mm -hmm. And at, at some point, I knew I had to make a decision. We had some sponsors for, for racing, and we had done well, regional uh, championships and, and that, that sort of thing. Never, uh, we raced uh, National Hot Rod Association, NHRA, okay. and, and went to the Nationals several times, just never won that big. We had some partial sponsorships, but I realized that the way it worked is I, wherever I was wrestling, I'd try to get home in the early spring to help my dad get the race car ready, mm -hmm. right? And then wrestle for around Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, uh, West Virginia. And uh, it was, if we'd have gotten a full sponsorship, I might have been doing that instead of, you know, sticking with wrestling. Yeah. But it just never played out that way. And it was kind of crazy in a way because I could be wrestling, say in Michigan, and drive uh, Saturday night. Saturday night. Get home three o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. Go to bed. Get three or four hours sleep. Get up. Help my dad get the race car up on the, the and hook it up. He he did the tow job. I crawl in the back of the race car and get another hour or so sleep <laughs> before I had to drive it. Right. Yeah. But you can only do that for so long. And so finally, then in. in uh, 66 I gave it up 1966 it was it turned it was wrestling full time and full speed ahead but I still love watching drag racing and again if I were a wealthy man I I you know you say a Jay Leno's got this building full of great looking race cars and, and hot street machines I I'd, I'd be that same way if yeah. I could afford it <laughs> still love the racing but just don't have the time for it or the money anymore what was it that what was it that drew you to racing initially Oh, wow. Well, you know, back in my childhood, uh, getting a driver's license was just this amazing thing, right? But hot rodding and drag strips were just becoming popular okay. at, at that point in time, right? And uh, so it was something fascinating. You know, you want, you want to be a teenager, you want to drive a car. Mm -hmm. But there was something about uh, the power, the speed... It, it just, uh, the adrenaline rush from it, sure. you know. Yeah. I mean, I still sit here and watch uh, NHRA drag races from someplace on my television, and I'll feel my, you know, <laughs> getting all cranked up when they're getting ready to fire up, right? So the feeling's still there. It's just, it's a little late in life for me to think about it at this point in time. It's, it's never too late, Les. Never too late. <laughs> um so you mentioned earlier you were a fan of wrestling starting at nine, and I think the if I remember the story correctly, it was um, you were watching TV at a friend's house was yes. the first time that you that you saw it. Do you remember the match or like the I don't want to say segment, but like what was it that like caught your attention initially? Um, well, it was just I I never even knew what professional wrestling was before yeah. this, right? And my my we're we're going to the Benzingers. That was the family's. Uh, we're going to watch wrestling, mm -hmm. okay? But just the the characters, the the whole fast it was fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, back then, uh, Ivan Rasputin, the Mad Russian, Lord James Blears from England, Don Eagle, right? And uh, they just, you know, it captured me. Yeah. And once I saw it on neighbor's television, I'd find a way to see it somewhere else. And finally, we got a TV. Mm -hmm. And at one point, uh, back then, you know, wrestling was so big simply because cameras were so huge and cumbersome that because it was, you know, in, in a confined area, mm -hmm. boxing and roller derby and wrestling became big staples on television. In the course of a week, back in Cincinnati during that time, 
could see uh, local wrestling on WLWT in Cincy, WLD in Dayton, Hollywood Legion Stadium, Chicago, New York, uh, St. Nicholas Arena in New York, mm -hmm. Marigold Gardens in Chicago, Hollywood Legion Stadium in L.A. There was a kinescope, which uh, another word for film, mm -hmm. right, <laughs> that came out of Texas. But we saw, could see all this wrestling, right? And it was just my mom and dad enjoyed it, and we started going to some matches. Okay. So one, one of my, my, my childhood idol was Nature Boy Buddy Rogers. Mm -hmm. And once I got smart enough to the business, I realized I couldn't have picked a better role model. I mean, this guy, one of the masters, one of the greatest of all time. And other people in the industry will tell you that. But one of my one of the things that I have, I don't have it here local, right close by, is I had my picture taken with Rogers when I was 12 years old. Okay. And I've still got a black and white copy of that. And that was just... A huge deal. The one thing I can say in my entire wrestling career, my in-ring career lasted 20 years, mm -hmm. from 1960 to 1980. I never got the chance to wrestle Rogers. And if, you know, if I could some magically make myself young and bring him back from the grave or something, that would be the one thing that I think I missed out on. Yeah. I always wanted the chance to, to lock up with him and have a match with him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. What okay so so it drew you in um you're a fan you you know you're watching it your parents love it they're taking you how how did you find out about like the fact that people even trained people like well there wasn't anybody at that time we realized it was a closed shop back then too yeah yeah right i mean kayfabe you and i know what that means a lot of people probably listening to your podcast won't know but that's uh, it, it was a clothes shop. So I, uh, high schools didn't have wrestling in Cincinnati at that point. So it was the YMCA's, right? And it was organized, but not, you know, so I'm frustrated. And I'd ask, like, go to the matches, would ask a referee or something, you know, or, uh, oh, well, kid, you know, you, you need to get experience. Well, how do I do? Well, you need to get bigger, this and that. So I... Uh, See, I would have been about 18 at the time, and I decided to go. Uh, Al Half Promotions was one of the biggest in the industry at back then. He was based in Reynoldsburg, Ohio, which is a suburb of Columbus. Mm -hmm. So I drove up there one day and asked to talk to somebody. And the, the, the guy I talked to, I'd seen wrestlers. His name was Frankie Talibur. He was the booker, and I didn't even know what a booker was at that point, mm -hmm. right? But the same thing, he said, well, kid, you need experience. You need. I was maybe 175, 180 pounds at the time, so you need some size. But where do I get this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I was frustrated. I wanted to be a professional wrestler, but didn't know how to get my foot in the door. Wrestling Review magazine, back then, there were probably seven or eight monthly wrestling magazines on all the newsstands, and Wrestling Review was one of the biggest and I bought one of those. That would have been in 59. And it had a story about Tony Santos, who was giving young athletes that thought they wanted a career in wrestling a chance to train with him in his gym in Boston. Okay. So I wrote him a letter. Okay. And uh, I got a brochure. In fact, I have. I don't have it right here. I have the three, the trifold brochure that he sent me. No shit. Back in 1959, with notes on it. Yeah, showing pictures. You know, be a TV star, travel the world, be a pro wrestler. Three hundred dollars for six months of training. Okay. I said I'm in. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> in uh, in February 1960, I got on a Greyhound bus and moved to Boston. Okay. To train to be a professional wrestler. And uh, that's how it all started. And it was, uh, well, I stayed, I was telling somebody this the other day. Uh, lived in a rooming house on Westland Avenue, just off of Mass Avenue and around the corner from Symphony Hall in Boston, of all places. And we were paying $10 a week. But in that building were uh, Pat Patterson, a guy named Don Kindred, Black Magic, Ronnie Dupree, Golden Boy Dupree, Alex Medina, and a couple other young, uh, well, uh, Luke Graham actually started with Santos as well, like okay. I did. So uh, anyway, that's 
that rooming, what was a rooming house then on Westland Avenue is today a multi-million dollar yeah. <laughs> condo. So I drive by and say, hey, I used to live there a hundred years ago. So anyway, I started my trading in February 1960, had my first match July the 4th, 1960, and have been involved in the business in one way or another ever since. Yeah. So you, okay, February to July, were you, that's what, I'm bad at math, like roughly five months, uh, were you training like full time? I mean, was it, was yes. it like, a, it was like your job, essentially? Yeah, yeah. well, I had a, um, one of the guys who, uh, his name was uh, Billy Graham, not, not, that was his real name, it wasn't okay. like superstar <laughs> Billy Graham. He owned a fuel and ice business, and so I worked with him. Some on his on this ice truck, and you talk about cardio. Yeah. <laughs> Back then they had ice boxes. You know, you know what an ice box is, yeah. right? You yeah. Put a twenty-five pound block of ice in the top of this thing. A fan spins around and cools the food inside. Of course, you got to replace that block of ice every twenty-four hours at least, right? Yeah. So I'm, and these tenements, which the stairways are like climbing Mount Everest, right? <laughs> so I'm hustling up and down these stairways with one or two. 25 pound blocks of ice in my hands and wondering why I can't gain any weight. Yeah. <laughs> but so that was actually the way I made some money, right? Until, until I broke in in the business. And as you know, today everyone is aware that professional wrestling is predetermined, that the winner, we've determined the winner, et cetera, et cetera. It's all that. Well, that wasn't the case back then, yeah. obviously. And so I lived around these guys, but I wasn't smart to the business. And when I talk to some of the young guys that I work with today in these weekend training camps that I do, I'll say, you know, I started training in February 60. I had my first match July the 4th, 60. Do you know when they smart me up to the business? And of course, guys will start guessing. I'll say, it's easy. July the 4th, 1960. Right. <laughs> That's one. So we got stretched a little bit, stung a little bit, you know, just to see if you're going to stay. Yeah. You know, that first couple of weeks, to be honest, they handed me my ass yeah. about every night because they weren't going to smarten you up to the inside of the business until they were sure you were going to hang on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it was a whole other story about getting in the business yeah. back then than it is today. Or even when you were with me. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's changed so drastically. Yeah. But that's how it all started for me. And, uh, which is, wow. It's, it's, it's Go ahead. I was going to say, it's interesting, though, because I feel like when you were running HWA2, people thought that you were kind of hard on people at first, like to weed people out. But but like it's it's very different than what you're describing there. So it's sort of like the evolution, I guess, of being hard on people. Right. Like, yeah. Well, now I would tell you the truth. When I first started training guys. I was probably much harder than I, I would be currently, or I started to ease back over the years. Sure. But at that at, at first, it was more, okay, I'm putting my name on the line here. Yep. So this is either going to be good or it's not going to be at all. Right. One of the two, right? Because my reputation was on the line. Yeah. And also what was frustrating for me initially was that I've got like 25 got kids but I'm the only guy that's smart to the business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to explain something that they don't understand, and there's nobody that can help me explain it, right? Right. So it, it was frustrating, and, and yeah, and, and I was a, a major SOB at times. <laughs> two ways. But, but you know, I, I had coaches all my life that were in-your-face type people, right? Yeah. That would yell at you, and I, I never, never physically injured me and never hurt me, and, and if anything... To me, it was just a challenge, mm -hmm. you know? They would say, this sucks when you do this. Okay, that means I need to get better at it. Right, right. Right? And that's when I was, well, we were around. A lot of the guys would, would tell the newcomers, you know, if the old man's on you, that means he thinks you've got possibilities. Yeah, yeah. If he's not yelling at you, maybe you should start worrying then. Because right. <laughs> yeah. he's, you know, he's pushing the guys who he thinks are going to, because it's a tough business, as you know, yeah. right? It's it's not a walk in the park no. by any stretch of the imagination. God, no, no. And I will say that I think, like, I think that you had an ability to, uh, to, how do I say this? Not, like, necessarily, it wasn't like people that were cookie cutter. Like, there were people who didn't have the look that had the drive, and you could see that. 
Yes. You know yes. what I mean? Like, I, I don't want to like name people by name, but yeah, like you would have people come in that you're like, okay, you obviously have some work to do on the physicality, but like your, your brain is there and like your passion is there and we can work on the body. Um, well, time bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie, yeah. Uh, who wasn't physically great to look at, yeah, but had all the mental makeup to make one hell of a wrestler out of him. And he was good. Yeah. You know, it's just, he never had the size to go anywhere. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. That's what I mean, I guess. So I, I don't feel like you, it was like, yeah, I feel like it was uh, it was fair and balanced. I guess. Ooh, I hate that term, but um, yeah, I feel, <laughs> I feel like you were giving people a fair chance if they if you saw that they were putting in the effort and 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 trying to make you know themselves yeah. better. Well, you know, I do weekend training camps, so you know when I'm asked, and I always tell these kids that I've never worked with before. I said, you can be the worst physical specimen I've ever seen, but if I know you're giving me a hundred percent of what you have. I'm here for you, and yeah. I will work with you as long as you want. Yeah. You can be the greatest athlete I've ever seen, but if you have an attitude, I don't have five seconds for you. Right. Get out of my face. Yeah. Leave your leave your ego at the door. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Let's talk about. Uh, can you can you tell me how? I want to go back to like your let's say your wrestling career um, okay. and this the cousins faction that you were a part of. How, how fun was it to work alongside Roger Kirby and Dennis Hall? It, it was great. It, it was they were they were like my brothers from another, from other mothers. Honestly, we became yeah. that close. We traveled together. We uh, shared apartments and uh, the whole nine yards. But it just actually it came about. As an idea, they had been, they were both from Indiana. So we met when I started wrestling for Barnett out of Indianapolis. And the friendship grew, the three of us. So I had just come back to uh, back to Cincy from, I had been working out of the Phoenix uh, for a promotion in Phoenix, Arizona. And just, I was still working around the around Ohio, Indiana, you know, uh, but still looking for some place to go. And I heard Roger and Dennis were in Atlanta. So uh, we were writing letters. You, you young people would understand <laughs> that. <laughs> right? But uh, anyway, uh, I told him, I said, I'm looking for some player to go. Would you like to come down here? I said, well, if we're working out. So one day my phone rings and uh, Kirby's on the other end. And he said, I'm in Leo Garibaldi's office. Leo was the booker. And uh, he said, I'm going to put him on. So Leo said, these guys are, think you're pretty good, are you? And I said, well, I hope so. And he said, would you like to work here? And I said, yes. So uh, we got a starting date. Well, Dennis was going to Florida. Okay. And so uh, he had figured to put Roger and I together as a team. Anyway, Leo had. So since they had, and, and actually they are cousins by marriage or were. Okay. Right. So that's where the idea came to. And I said, well, let's, you know. Since we're going to be together, let's find something that solidifies that, you yeah. know, ties it, ties it together. And so we came up with a cousin's idea. Yeah. And that's how it all started in, in Atlanta in 1966. Okay. And that ran yeah. for what, like three, it was like three years, right? Three, four years? Yeah. Yeah. Up and, uh, yeah. Up until, uh, yeah. Yeah. Three years up to 69. And then still there was times we'd run into each other, you know, in different places and, and yeah. uh, work together. But yeah, yeah, it was, it was so much fun with those guys too. <laughs> it was just, it was a great time. Oh my gosh. And so this is the hard part. Cause it's like when you have a career that spans so long, right? Like we could literally talk for <laughs> eight hours probably or more. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to just keep progressing in the seventies. You basically work for territories all over the country. Um, including like NWA, uh, Mid-Atlantic, Southeastern Championship, Georgia Championship, Smoky Mountain. Those are just a few, right, that I have listed down here. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And then with – when did you start branching out into like some of the other roles as far as like announcing, hosting, again? You know, it seems like everything – well, it seems like the things that I progressed to outside of wrestling itself – were uh, happenstance or, or by accident, really, mm. right? Uh, well, I always thought I'd, I was always fascinated by disc jockeys like Wolfman Jack mm-hmm. and things like that, right? Always thought I'd like to be a, yeah, Wolfman Jack, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so, anyway, I, uh, Rudy Kay, uh, who had, uh, was my next door neighbor in Charlotte for uh, quite a, uh, almost a year, 
we became friends and traveled together in the Carolinas. And he went back to the Maritimes where he's from, went to New Brunswick, and opened a territory in 1969. And so anyway, I was in Tennessee in 70, in Nash based out of Nashville. And he called me and he said, I'd like to come up and work for me. So I went up there to wrestle, and that was the only reason I went. And uh, so anyway, his uh, commentator was originally from Toronto and had a death in the family. So he had to go back to Toronto. So Rudy was needed somebody to fill in for him. Now, Rudy and his brothers were noted as big rivers, right? And so we lived in Moncton wrestled in Moncton on Monday night. We'd go to Halifax on Tuesday, work the house show in Halifax on Tuesday, do TV there on Wednesday, and then go to our next town. So Monday before I went to the matches in, in uh, Moncton, Rudy called me at my apartment, and he's just talking. And finally said, you know how you used to talk about you'd like to be a disc jockey? Or maybe, of course, solely. Once I met solely, I thought, this is the way a, a wrestling commentator should sound. This is the way he should be. And if I were going to do that, this is who I'd want to be like. So anyway, he said, you know, we, you talked about when we're on the road, maybe doing some wrestling commentary. And I said, yeah. He said, well, bring, bring your suit and tie to Halifax tomorrow. And at first I think he's pulling my leg, right? right. I'm going to come get dressed up, end up on TV, and he'll say, ah, we got you. Right? We ribbed you. But no, he said, and he told me about, you know, his, his commentator had to go to Toronto because of the death in the family. So I worked, walked onto a TV set as the host, and it was only a one-man deal at that time. There wasn't a team, right? right. A color man and a play-by-play -play guy. Having only done interviews, I'd never read a format, never even seen a format, right? I'd never queued in and out of a segment. <laughs> and, oh, here it is, right? <laughs> How I got through it, I have no earthly idea, but I did. And so he came to me later in the week. Well, I, actually, I did a second week. And then he came to me at, at, at later in the second week. And he said, you're doing a good job for us. And I wasn't sure what I was doing. <laughs> and he said, I'm, if it's all right, we'll work something out. You'll finish out the season. Because the season ran from uh, mid-April to uh, toward the end of October. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to let uh, the other guys stay in Toronto. And I'll pay you extra to cover, do the TV and continue to wrestle on the same deal that we had. So that's how I got started in television, was just actually by accident. You know? Wow. Then when I came back to the States, I had gone back to Nashville for a while. Then I went to uh, Tampa. And then uh, the Crockett's were looking for a number two babyface team behind Becker and Weaver at that time. So they were calling around. And so the office in Tampa thought that Danny Miller and I, Danny was an Ohio boy as well from Fremont. Uh, for some reason, they thought the two of us would work out, and both of us were got, had gotten along with the Crockett organization and had been there before, so we moved on to Charlotte uh, as a team from there. And so uh, I'm just doing my thing, and uh, Lord Littlebrook, uh, the, uh, one of the midgets, and some of the midgets came in, and I was in the office with Littlebrook and Jim Crockett Sr. And Brooks said to Mr. Crockett, he said, why is it less on your TV? And Mr. Crockett looked at him and said, well, he is on my TV. And Brooks said, oh, no, no, Mr. Crockett. He said, I mean, as a commentator. And Jim looked at him like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, and he said, well, Les did Rudy's TV last, you know, uh, last summer and, and, and did a great job. And Mr. Crockett, he said, you never told me. I said, well, never knew I was supposed to. I never asked. Yeah, you I, never asked. <laughs> so he started, he said, would you like to try? And I said, yeah, okay. Sure. So that's how they fa phased me in, in this, on this side of the border, basically. And that's, it, it took off from there. Yeah. But magazines, same thing with Mr. Crockett. Uh, I was looking, I was looking on at some old uh, photo albums of mm -hmm. wrestler, you know, with little bio sketches, and you could get them the autograph albums, basically, is what they were. And I said to Mr. Crockett, I said, uh, These are really old. I haven't seen, you don't do these anymore. He said, Well, I forget who it was. Somebody had been in the office with him, worked for him. He said, They did those, but nobody's here to do them anymore. I said, That's a shame. He said, Well, why don't you try it? And I said, Try it. He said, Put one together. I'll pay you. <laughs> 
So that's how I got started doing mag, you know, and that morphed into the full color magazine, Mid Atlantic magazines that we did, and a lot of innovations there. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it's just it's crazy. Uh, right here in Knoxville, when I came on board with Ron Fuller uh, in '74, uh, as uh, his producer of television and his his play by play guy, he said, "Build me a television." I I don't know that much about it. You have carte blanche. And so I'm proud to say that a lot of stuff that we did back in 75 and 76 and 77 that nobody thought would work and did is still being done today. And today it's just, it's not like uh, a normal sit down interview like you and I are doing now. Yeah. We did, we put a thing called personality profile together, mm -hmm. right? In the, in the middle of the show. And, um, uh, Every, uh, the old timer said that won't work. Why? Well, you're doing a, a, a low key sit down interview in the middle of your one hour wrestling show. You're letting your momentum die and you'll never get it back. Oh. Well, they were wrong, but I'll tell you why I thought it would work. Again, because of other things that I'd seen. I mentioned uh, uh, going to Atlanta in 66. First time I was interviewed on television there. Uh, Leo told me, he said, you, you aren't figured into any hot angles or anything. So uh, this drag racing thing that you've got on your uh, publicity uh, stuff, is that a shoot? I said, yeah, it's a shoot. He said, you know anything about drag racing in Georgia? I said, yes. Well, I'm going to have Ed, meaning Ed Capral, who was the host, in, uh, ask you about the drag racing. So he did, and we talked about it and what I knew about it. So the following Monday night in Augusta, Georgia, and I'm outside the dressing room, and this lady comes up and says, my grandson would like to meet you. Are you going to be here for a few minutes? I said, yes, ma'am. So she went. And he was, I guess, 13, 14 years old. So I've signed an autograph for him, and I said to him, I said, uh, do you come to Bell Auditorium with your grandmother all the time? And before he could even answer, she said he's never been here before. Mm. But he comes over to my house and watches wrestling every Saturday with me. I said, really? She said, yeah. He, she said, but he saw you talking about Hot Rods to Ed Capral, and he wanted to meet you. Yeah. And it registered to me that I had just sold a wrestling ticket, not because of anything to do with wrestling, but because this young man and I shared a hobby. Yeah, yeah. Which is one of the reasons I wanted to do the profile. But then also, uh, if you stop and look at NASCAR, that's all about connections yeah. with the fans, right? Absolutely. If, you know... I'm a big fan of this guy, a driver, because he drives the same kind of car I do. Mm -hmm. So I just saw with what I call personality profile is here is something I can sit down with these guys in a five-minute pre-tape segment. We talk about your school background, your hobbies, uh, because now we're giving the fans another something to hang on to. Yeah, it's like a whole different dimension. I, I, exactly. Yeah. We, you know, oh, we went to the same college or we have the same hobbies. And it worked out that way, and it worked out that way really well. So, but again, like I say, well, as a trainer, that was by accident. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bob Harmon, the, the original beautiful Bobby, is a Cincinnati boy. Mm -hmm. He was he was beautiful Bobby with WWWF mm -hmm. with Vince <laughs> Jr. But anyway, uh, we made, we had a long time friendship, Bob and I. Anyway, he called me one day and he said, there's a guy here who's got a school in Cincinnati and uh, he's got a trainer that's an idiot and he's about to lose all these students if he doesn't get somebody worthwhile. And I'm sitting there listening and uh, so finally I said, okay, why are you telling me all this? Well, you're the guy that's going to be the trainer. I said, you're out of your freaking mind. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I was, I was do, uh, doing competitive bodybuilding and working uh, with bodybuilders time, but I was also doing Smokey's TV here in, you know, here in uh, southeastern Tennessee mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, for Cornette at the time. So I was still involved in, in wrestling and everything. So he said, no, no. I said, Bob. I, so anyway, he talked me into going to see one of these... And it's the first independent wrestling show I'd ever seen. And I was horrified. Mm -hmm. I thought, my God, my business has come to this. <laughs> right? So it, and uh, so these two guys are in the ring, and, and the one guy goes out and grabs a chair. And I can just tell by the way he's holding that chair, he doesn't know how to swing it or how to use it. Mm -hmm. Right? 
And sure enough, he didn't. He rung the other guy's bell, and they had to go help the other kid out of the ring. So I tur- I'm, I'm with my Bob Harmon, mm-hmm. and then on the other side of him is the guy that owns the school sitting there. I said, how long has this guy been wrestling? And Bob leans over and comes back, and he said, he's been to four practices. I said, oh, my God, he's a, never mind a chair. He didn't have any business even being in there. Wow. I mean, none. Yeah. So at that point, I said, okay, I'm going to try this. Yeah. And here we are. Yeah. <laughs> right? so, so, so much in my wrestling career that I, all these, you know, the magazines and, and broadcasting and, and the training yeah. actually just came about by, by accident. You know something else, and I don't know if you and I ever talked about this or not, Something else I'm, I'm proud to say I was part of a first in was the first wrestling T-shirt. That was my next question for you. I do so I do know this. I I know that I you and I have not talked about it, but I do know that you were involved in producing the first ever wrestling T-shirt, the Briscoe Booster yes. shirt. Like, how did that ever? How did that happen? Well, you know, well, T-shirts uh, back in the '60s. That's when he's really got, you know, band T-shirts mm-hmm. and all. So, you know, a lot of logos on T-shirts were getting big. And, I, and I'm seeing this with, a, like, banners and stuff with other sports. So I had approached a couple promoters with the idea of, I'm thinking the baby faces could have a T-shirt. And these promoters just, ah, we're in the wrestling business. We're not in the merchandise business, right? Because back then, uh, promotions sold nothing except concessions. Right, right. Right? I mean, if as a wrestler, I had uh, black and white 8 by 10s I sold those for a buck a piece. I had some kid hustle them for me, and it had nothing to do with the promotion itself, right? Yeah. So anyway, Jack and Jerry and I were sitting around Jerry's apartment in Charlotte, uh, having a couple... Uh, uh, bruise <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just talking in general right just hanging out and I, I happened to tell them about my frustration with the fact that I thought these t-shirts would do well and Jack said well let's do it I said what he said well the three of us let's each put in a third whatever it's going to take let's do it and we did uh, and of course, we weren't great entrepreneurs or great businessmen. <laughs> Jack was busy being a world champion. Jerry and I were both busy wrestling, right? So uh, the T-shirts started to go well. Then we started to get some. Uh, I was I was still doing the Charlotte. I was doing the magazines Charlotte. I was still doing a program in Georgia at the time. Mm-hmm. This is after I'd come back to Charlotte. I'd been down in Georgia uh, working with Gordon on their TV during the war and in the office. So anyway. Uh, it comes down to where now people are seeing, whoa, these T-shirts are a good idea. Yeah. So now everybody wants a piece of the pie. Yeah. And of course, we're we're in no position, you know, but we we sold some by mail order and uh, uh, and once we got rid of what we had, we just we walked away from it because it was a full time, you know. Yeah. Now had uh, one of the. Uh, I remember it's Dave, Dave Hebner or, uh, or his brother Earl. But anyway, one of the rich department stores are in the southeastern United States. And, and I know there's a rich department store in Richmond, Virginia, one in Atlanta, a couple in Atlanta. Anyway, they knew somebody in the hierarchy of the rich department stores. And they had told me that we're going to take a couple of these T-shirts and see if we can't get you guys in the rich department stores. Had that have happened, mm-hmm. we'd probably still be in the T-shirt <laughs> business. Yeah. Right? I, I've teased Jerry a couple of times now. I say, you realize all the, if we got 1% of the net off of every T-shirt that's sold now, yeah, well, we'd never work another day in our lives, yeah. would we? Yeah, because there's so, like you think about it, you have like all the pro wrestling T-stores and like obviously WWE has their own. Um, sure. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. It, it really is. But, you know, that's the thing. There's so many things that I, I'm tied to. And uh, several of the things that I've been an innovator in have just happened. Yeah. You know, there was no big, huge plan that I'm going to take over this or do that. It just, we've, it fell into place. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, that shirt, uh, obviously not the, the first run, but you can still buy that design at, um, sure. at Pro, Pro Wrestling, Wrestling Tees. Tees. Yeah, yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes in case anybody wants to go buy one. Yeah. <laughs> 
I actually have one here. Um, Good for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk about training for a little bit. So um, when did you go from training uh, at that that guy's school to, like, founding your own uh, pro wrestling camp? Within uh, less than a year okay. uh, of that time because I found that he actually – was a con artist, okay. and uh, although the guy I replaced actually wasn't a trainer, this guy had no business being in the wrestling business at all. So uh, we opened H- uh, HWA, mm-hmm. uh, well, Brady Labor and myself, and uh, talk about an auspicious beginning. <laughs> uh, a, guy that, uh, a guy that refereed for us had a little home out in the country we bought a ring, but we had no building yet. Mm. So he was able to store that building, uh, our ring in his bill in his building, which he also lived in. But for the until we established our own building, till we found a building, we were setting that ring up on Saturday and Sunday in his side yard. And then, of course, it's not level, right? It's not like sure. astroturf. So <laughs> you had to block part of it up with a, you know this and that and that. And then sweat bees all over the place, so we're getting sprayed. But that's the way HWA first started. Okay. Wow. It, it, yeah. What? Um. <laughs> where Where did you get the ring? Uh, from Ted Allen. Okay. He was brokering rings at the time. For those who don't know who Ted Allen is, if you know who Arn Anderson is, Big Boss Man, Scotty Riggs, uh, Ted trained. All those guys. Ted was a good hand himself. Yeah. But yeah, we, we bought the ring from Ted. And how, so it was quite some time before you like got to a place of like, I'm going to call like the developmental with either WCW or WWF, right? That Which right. for people listening that may not know, it's like the WWE NXT brand before that existed. <laughs> yes. Um, so yes, you obviously HWA, and you're you turned into that. But like, wh- what was it like getting from you know uh, wrestling in somebody's yard, training in somebody's yard, to like, oh, we have the building. Were you, was the first building on Hillsmith? Uh, no, it was uh, in oh. that little uh, business park. You know, remember where the hotel was as you came yep. off the exit? Yeah. Okay. So it was just a little over from Hillsmith. Down the side okay. there by the gas. Station. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was the first place that we went. It was Spartan, right? Spartan Drive? Spartan Drive, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we moved into a larger uh, place in that same complex. Yeah. And that's where we first got noticed. Well, we I shouldn't say that. We we, we did supply, uh, like, WWF uh, enhancement talent when they come through Cincinnati and so forth and so on, right? So, uh, actually, uh, OVW, Ohio Valley, yep. had become a developmental system and then I got a call from Bruce Pritchard saying he wanted to come up he was going to be in Louisville and wanted to come up Cincinnati and had wanted to talk to me about something so they came up and uh, we talked and, and worked in theory anyway worked out a deal for me to be a developmental uh, promotion for WWF mm-hmm. but paperwork and so forth and so on, right? And so I'm sitting around waiting for something to happen and my phone rings and it's uh, Jester from uh, WCW. Mm -hmm. And he said, his first thing, have you signed with WWF? (laughs) And I said, no, no, Gary, I haven't. And he said, well, JJ and I were just talking about you. We were wondering if they were reading our mail because we would like to talk to you about the same thing. He said, before you sign, we want to fly you down here and talk to you. So that's what happened. And honestly, WCW made the best offer at that point. Yeah. Right? And so that's the offer we accepted, and that's where, you know, how we first got to start. And, and of course, I had friends on both sides, you know, on both promotions. And uh, But JR, I remember JR saying, well, we'll get a chance to work together yeah at, at, at some point you know so but of course that's that's the way it started so we started with wcw and then what like how what was the like what was that like the because that was before my like when i was there um yeah the wcw well, chapter the reason we moved into the big big building that uh you know that we were in initially 
was because that's WCW said, if we're going to back you, you're going to use our name, et cetera. You got to get out of this little warehouse, right? So that's why we were making the move. But of course, what we didn't know, WCW was rupturing money yeah. and losing their asses. And so at some point, uh, they had to cut some ties. And we were the new kids on the block as far as they were concerned, right? And they had the power plant in-house. Right, right. Yeah. So okay. uh, so they cut us. And uh, so then I had heard from, again, from JR saying, hang on. Because uh, we're working with Memphis now, mm-hmm. but they have—they're not doing it the way they're not doing what we want done. We've given them a deadline, and I almost guarantee you they're not going to change anything up to that deadline. So, but keep it to yourself. So that's what I had to do. And then when they decided to drop uh, Memphis, they signed us, and that's how we got there. Yeah. Okay. And then it was like it was shortly after that when they actually bought. I'm I'm trying to remember. It was right after that, like that they actually bought out WCW. Yeah. Because yeah. okay. And they brought all the cruiserweights to us. Correct. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you had like I remember Mike Sanders was there, like Jamie, obviously Jamie Noble, Shannon. Um, yeah. Yeah. Kaz Hayashi. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy Yang. That. Oh, how can I forget Jimmy Yang? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know what? We had a hell of a crew. Yeah. Uh, BJ and I, before I sold uh, the television, uh, our TV rights mm-hmm. to WWE, uh, BJ and I had sat down in my living room. It took us over a couple of weeks and looked at all of our TV shows that we had done down in OVW, right? He said, damn, what a hell of a crew we had. I said, yes. Logan, they could have taken our cruiserweights in mass moved them right up to the main roster and never missed a beat. They yeah. were that we were we were they were that good. They really were. Yeah. I'm proud of that whole crew and you were part of that. Yeah, yeah. I can I'm t- tail end of that. <laughs> um it was it was great. It was you know, it was really weird to like walk into that, right? Like I had no idea what I was walking into and as somebody who had like been a fan my entire life, um it was weird to be like sitting there, you know, talking to people that I had watched on TV less than 6 months or you know, even 3 months, shit. We couldn't have bought that kind of publicity anywhere. We were on MSNBC's special edition, ABC's 2020. We didn't get any dollars and cents, but we got a million dollars worth of publicity out of that. Do you have any idea where that guy is now? Probably in jail. He was arrested at one point. Well, in Canada as well. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if he's still alive. That's true. But that would probably be a miracle as well. How did you get involved in wrestling, Logan? (laughs) So I don't know if you remember this or not. This was before my college exposure to you. And it was after True Life, I'm a pro wrestler. I was like, I want to work in wrestling. This is really embarrassing for me to admit this to you. Colt, if you're listening, uh, you need to call Les and give him your your Les Thatcher impression. As well as I know you, you're a quiet, unassuming young man. When I found out you were doing stand-up, I said, how drunk does he have to be to get up there and do that? 